Welcome to this episode of the Modern Law Library. I'm Ashley Elfervik from ABA Publishing, and I'll be today's host. In this episode, I speak with Carol Shiro Greenwald, the author of Strategic Networking for Introverts, Extroverts, and Everyone in Between. Carol helps law firms to grow their businesses through marketing and management strategies. Her targeted and practical programs teach lawyers how to bring in business and make their firms more profitable. Today, she uses her coaching skills to teach me about the art of networking in person and online. Carol, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ashley. So to start off with the title, it may be obvious why introverts can struggle with networking, but people probably perceive extroverts as natural networkers. How can extroverts need just as much help with effective networking? That's a great question. People always think that introverts are terrible at networking. Actually, if you can get them in the room, they're often better than extroverts. And the reason is, is that extroverts are having the time of their life at the party. So they're going around kissing everyone they know and saying, hi, how are you, and moving on to the next person. And they're not really taking the time to find out what's new, what's going on, to connect with the person. They're just going through like they're dating. And it's fun to see everybody in the network. But the introverts don't want to do that. They can't imagine following an extrovert to do that. So what they tend to do is meet someone and begin to talk to them about questions more than where do you work and where do you live. They begin to ask questions like, why did you become a lawyer? How did you decide to join a large firm instead of a small one? Why did you go out on your own? And those kinds of questions can lead a person into a really interesting conversation where you get to know them better. Meanwhile, the extrovert is partying around, and at the end, we'll have said hello to everybody and found out nothing about anybody. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for that perspective. I think um, it's nice for introverts to know both that uh, there's good opportunities and for extroverts to know they might need more help than they expect. (laughs) So I wanted to talk a little bit about goal setting. Um, SMART goals, S-M-A-R-T, are common when uh, looking to create growth, but SWOT matrices are something a little different. Can you explain to me first how to pronounce that? And secondly, uh, just talk about that concept with our listeners. It's called a SWOT matrix, as in SMART is called SMART. That's called SWOT. And basically, it's in here because what happens often with professionals is, is they begin to focus too narrowly in terms of their goals and their plans. And instead of thinking big picture, Who do I want to work with? What is the life like of the potential client that I want? What's my life like? Where do I want to be in 10 years? They look right in front of them and they say, okay, so I'm going to plan to um, work with this client tomorrow, that kind of thing. And that's not a good plan for networking. Networking, you want to have a set of goals and you want to have a plan that very broadly involves the context in which you will be networking. So what's involved in the context is yourself and your own goals, the strengths and weaknesses of the firm or the situation that you're in, the kinds of clients that you work with, and what they're thinking about, what their world is like. So for instance, if you work with a consumer company, who do they sell to? What do they sell? Why do the people they sell to buy it? What are the problems of the company in terms of their own trajectory? How are they growing? Why are they growing? Why aren't they growing? What is it 
that you would do for them that you would like? How does your skill set help them to get through their problems and to maximize their opportunities? So the SWOT matrix helps you with that. On one side, there are the strengths and weaknesses that relate to you and the world in which you work. That's the S and the W. On the other side are the opportunities and threats in the broader world. So who's the competition? What is the new reg that's going to be passed or the new law that's going to impact this kind of company or this person? So, for instance, if you work with the elderly and if President Trump really does kill Obamacare, this is a very important thing and a great opportunity for lawyers in this field to get moving and to anticipate how it will impact the elderly and how they can showcase the skills they have that will help them to meet it. So when you lay it out in four quadrants, the strength opposite the opportunity, the weakness opposite the threat, you can see that where it is that you have to focus, the kinds of people you have to meet, how your networking can be strategic instead of ad hoc. Definitely. Carol, thank you for elaborating on that. So in contrast to networking, I wanted to talk a little more about informational interviews because that was something that I struggled with early in my career and eventually became really crucial to my job search. So can you talk a little bit about the art of the informational interview and its similarities and differences with regular networking? Well, thank you for phrasing it that way because actually it's a common misperception. If you want to do strategic networking, everything is an informational interview. And what I mean by that is that for informational interviews, you're researching the person you're going to be talking to. You're researching the kinds of questions they might be asking. You're thinking about your answers. You're thinking about what you want to know. You're planning ahead for how this conversation is going to go, right? Well, if you're doing networking correctly, you're doing the same thing. When you go to an event, you're thinking about who will be there. You're thinking about why you're going, what it is you want to get from it. And you're thinking about the kinds of questions you want to ask and the kinds of information you want to share. So informational interviews are an excellent example of what strategic networking should be. So when you're doing it for a career as opposed to perhaps getting the next client, one of the significant differences is that you're going to look at your contact list and you're going to see who your weak links are, who could help you to learn about new areas to find new opportunities. So a weak link is somebody perhaps that you link with or follow on LinkedIn. You don't know them very well, but you do know who they are. That's why you linked with them. But they have a job title or they work in a company that sounds like something that you would like to know about as part of your job search, your career change. So because they're a weak link, but still a link, you can send them an email or call them and say that you want 15-minute informational interview with them to help you understand some of the opportunities that are out there for your career. So when you're generally networking, you're going to some kind of group or meeting or online activity where you know a lot of people. And you may not be focused on weak links as opposed to those in your inner circle that we call strong links. But when you're going for career change, or for career growth, one of the things you want to do is pay great attention to your weaklings. 
so that you can use them to get informational interviews that will broaden your job search. Definitely. And um, speaking of LinkedIn, the book talks a lot about different strategies to network online as well. One concept I found really interesting was kind of like a networking double date where uh, two contacts look at each other's contact lists and pick out someone they'd like to speak with, and then they set up a group lunch. So what are some other innovative ways to network and connect online that move past that connect button? Well, another one, I interviewed 36 people for my book, half of them lawyers and half of them non-lawyers, as lawyers say, people who were in finance, accounting, sales positions, banking, those kinds of things. And one of the ones who is a non-lawyer, one of the things that she does is she never links with anybody online until she has met them. And so she uses the request to link with her as an opportunity to meet with the person and see what they have in common and whether it would be useful for them to um, share networks, share interests and those kinds of things. So she always goes to meet them. Another one that I think is excellent at linking the two areas is every time somebody looks at their profile, they can see on LinkedIn who that person is. They send them a thank you note and they say, I noticed that you looked at my profile. Thank you very much. And I'm wondering if one to talk for a few minutes to see why you were interested in learning more about me. Practically nobody is courteous online. So if you're courteous and say please and thank you and ask to meet people, that is probably the most innovative way to make a difference for yourself and to stand out online. Thanks for talking about that and kind of some cool ways to blend online and in-person networking. I guess, too, you know, a lot of people send messages about wanting to uh, pick your brain and grab lunch or a cup of coffee. You really discourage what you call random acts of lunch. I love that. So instead, you kind of encourage a more focused three-part networking strategy that talks about pre-planning and post-event follow-up. So can you break down that process a little for our listeners? Yeah, that's, that continues what I was just talking about in the informational interview question. If you're going to spend the time to go to an activity, you're probably talking about four hours out of your day. I live in New York City, and to get anywhere is an hour, even if it's a 10-block walk kind of thing. It just takes forever to go from one side of New York City to the other. Everybody takes longer to get between engagements than they think. So what I say is allow an hour to get there, an hour to get back, two hours for the meeting. There's four hours. But in addition to that, if you really want to maximize it, you have to say to yourself, why am I bothering to give up four hours? Well, four. What do I want to get out of it? Who's going to be there that I would like to know more about, to meet? Why is the topic important to my job and my career? and my growth. And when you have the answers to that, you create what we call an agenda. And the agenda has three parts. The first part is, what do I want to know? Why am I going? That usually has one or two points to it. I'm going because the speaker is talking about artificial intelligence and I want to learn more about it so I can see how it might integrate into my practice. I want to go to this event because there are going to be lots of bankers at the event, and I'm a corporate lawyer, those kinds of things. Then the second part is, 
your answers to what am I going to talk about? I can't just sit there like a dork and say nothing. How does what I usually say about myself fit with the people who are going to be there? Do I need to change my my basic introduction and my basic elevator speech to be relevant to the people I want to meet so that they'll remember me? That's part two. And part three is giving yourself a goal for what I want to get out of the meeting. I want to come out of the meeting having answers to two questions I have about AI, artificial intelligence, fitting into uh, my document management kind of work. I want to meet two people that I don't know who work for community banks. I want to meet two people who work for -for not-for-profit groups that work with the demographic that I focus on in my practice. So that is part one of the three parts. The second part is you go to the event. And when you walk in, you say to yourself, this is what I came for. This is what I'm going to do. And that's particularly important for introverts because if introverts have a reason and a process, that is something they can put in their mind so that instead of thinking about when they were wallflowers at dances in college, they can think about that they're career professionals and that they want to find out this kind of information to help them along. It's a great intellectual psychological crutch. I use it all the time because I'm on the introvert side of the introvert-extrovert continuum. They want to make sure that they walk around and meet the people they want. So if they've identified people who will be there that they want to meet, they can ask the person who's sitting at the desk when you come in giving out the cards to let them know when such a person comes. Nine times out of ten, they'll be delighted to do that. Or even smarter, they can link part one and part two, and they can send a note to the speaker and say, I'm coming to this because I'm so interested in hearing what you have to say about whatever the topic is. And I wonder if sometime while you're here, we could get together for 10 minutes to talk in depth about my interest in the topic and how what you know can help me to move it forward. Again, nine times out of 10, nobody ever writes to the speaker ahead of time. So they're so delighted they say yes. And then you don't have to be part of that mass of people who line up for how two seconds to talk with a speaker after the program. You've set yourself aside. You've made yourself different. You will be memorable, which is the point. Finally, when you leave, when you get home, instead of forgetting about it, take out the cards you've gotten, take out the notes you've taken, and take the time to add to your contacts list, fill in comments about the people that you met that you already knew, so you learned something new about Susie Smith or Charlie Brown, Add it to your comments section on the contacts page for them, and then decide who you want to see again and how you're going to fit them in and make those connections right away. One of the worst sins of networking, and I'm often guilty of it, but it is a sin indeed, is to wait four days before you follow up or four days before you answer someone else's following up. It doesn't have to be instantaneous, but it does have to be sort of what I call contiguous. That is, do it within the next 24 hours while the person who sent the message remembers they sent it and the person you're sending the message to remembers they met you. So you want to be prompt. And then the cycle begins again because based on what you've learned and what you've done, you're going to pick another place to go and another way to spend four hours. Definitely. And thank you for elaborating on that. And as you mentioned, networking can take a significant amount of time. Um, The book talks a lot about 
focusing on how to pick the right networking group. It also talks a lot about how people stay in a group for three to five years. So what are your quick tips for finding the right networking groups to spend your time with and how to know when it's time to move on? Great question. Finding the right group is crucial. First of all, many people ignore groups and focus only on one-on-one. That means meetings with one person with one person. The trouble with that is we all work for a living. We all have private lives and there's not enough time to meet enough people to help you in your networking because quantity is important along with quality in building a network. So one of the things to do is find groups where you'll be at a breakfast or a lunch meeting with 30 people. But again, it's a four-hour kind of time commitment. So how do you pick it? You pick it by going back to that SWOT analysis and your goals. And you're looking either for people who can introduce you to people you want to meet or people who are end users, people who are potential clients for you. So if, to go back to elder care, you are an elder care lawyer, one of the things you'll want to do, of course, is to join your bar association so that you keep up with what's going on. But for networking purposes, you want to join associations that deal with the elderly's problems or that involve the elderly. So every elder care lawyer should belong to AARP regardless of their age. AARP is one of the major national organizations for retired people. And so they can follow what the issues are and see what's important to them. There are many groups in local communities that focus on elderly and housing, elderly and sickness, elderly and home opportunities, all kinds of things. Where I live, we have an organization called Home on the Sound that works with services that help the elderly age in their homes. If you're a lawyer and that's your area, you should become involved with some of these groups so that eventually you learn how they think and what they care about and you're accepted as one of them, as someone who understands them. Because once you understand them, you've already passed the big hump. If you're in corporate law and you work with builders, then you want to be in organizations like BOMA, organizations that are trade associations or industry associations for people involved in the building industry. Again, same reason. You want to become part of their conversation, understand their conversation, and know what's important to them. If you're looking for referrals from other lawyers, you maybe want to join an organization that has nobody in it but lawyers, lawyers in different kinds of groups. So in my book, there's several organizations that are lawyer only that were founded by people in boutique firms or as working as solos who wanted to replicate what they had when they began their careers in-house. And so they put together organizations where there's one of each kind. So maybe they do intellectual property, but there's also lawyers who do corporate, who do litigation, who do health care, who do bankruptcy, who do all of the other areas so that as they get to know them over time, they have the kind of trust for making referrals. And instead of losing a client, they share a client. People join mixed groups, as I call them, ones that have lawyers in them and also humans in various industries. Humans is my word for non-lawyers. I think it's nicer. (laughs) If you do that, then you want to meet people in your community. Maybe you have a geographic focus for the range in which you want your clients. 
So you want to meet people who will introduce you to people that they know, whether or not they may be direct clients, they may be just links to clients. And people stay because they like the other people in the groups, because they get comfortable. And what happens is, is sometimes you get too comfortable and you stay in a group even after your goals and your career trajectory have changed. And then you need to get out. You need to go. When the group becomes stale, you stop planning and participating and preparing for those meetings. When you stop doing that, your energy level goes down. And if enough people in the group do that, the energy level of the whole group goes down. And so two of the groups that I interviewed for the book are out of business. One, because that happened. And the other, because the founders of the group decided to move on to different goals. Definitely. And um, thank you for, you know, explaining those concepts and really making sure your time is focused and knowing when, you know, like you said, things become stale and it is time to refocus. So one thing you mentioned is the ever important elevator pitch. We all know what makes an elevator pitch successful, but what do you think makes it unique? I think that there's a couple of things that people forget to do with elevator speeches. So an elevator speech, just to remind everybody, is is that short introduction that you make when you meet people that you don't know before or meet people that you haven't seen in a long time. And the concept is, is that the elevator is going up or down from between the 30th floor and the ground floor, and that's how much time you have to make a connection. So an elevator speech is short. It shouldn't be more than 30 seconds. Most people think that that's not a long time, but I want to remind you that most commercials on television are 15 seconds. I don't know about you, but for me, some of them seem to go on much longer than that. But they're very short. You can say a lot. And what happens is people use it for the wrong reasons. So there's two things about elevator speeches that are important. The first thing is, is that the first part of an elevator speech that people forget about entirely is that 93% of what a person takes in is visual. So the most important part of your elevator speech is how do you introduce yourself? Do you lean forward, shake hands? Is your posture strong? Do you look like a professional? Do you look like you're interested? Do you look like you want to meet them? Because that's going to set their reaction more than anything you say. Those are the most important but often forgotten about parts of an elevator speech. So, okay, you're standing tall. You're looking interested. You're giving a fabulous welcoming smile. Your handshake is strong. You're looking them in the eye. And then what do you say? Well, so what most people say is, Hi, my name is Charlie Brown, and I'm a partner in the firm of Brown, Brown, and Green. Okay, that ended it. Number one, because nobody cares where you work unless there's a reason for them to care because everybody belongs to the same radio station, as marketing people say, W-I-I-F-M, what's in it for me? So instead of saying your name, serial number, and rank, You should say your name, what you do, and then how what you do benefits them. But how about if you say, my name is is Charlie Brown, and I'm a lawyer who works with elderly individuals who want to write or rewrite their wills to make sure that their wishes in terms of how their assets are distributed get followed. So basically, in a way, you could say I'm giving them control beyond the grave. Well... Personally, to me, that's a lot more interesting. And what it does is it gives the other person 
a chance to ask a question. Because the point of an elevator speech is not to bore them to death with you. It's to interest them enough to ask a follow-up question and begin a discussion. Thank you for that. And I think, too, definitely some uh, very helpful tips in there. Now, all of this kind of accumulates to what is hopefully the ultimate example of you give and you get in networking, making and receiving referrals. Definitely a special art to that. So how do you gauge the right time to make a referral? And how do you keep things from going sour if the connection backfires? Well, some people don't ever want referrals. They don't need them. They just want to connect with the people who can use them. But most people at some point do want referrals. You're right. So referrers are people who are at the top of the networking system of participants. They are people who are connectors, as we call them, people who live and think, how can I help this person do more with their opportunities, get around the problems that they have? Who do I know who can help them? Now, they usually have huge networks, but not only are they huge, they are very diverse in terms of who's in them, what their resources are, because a good networker knows that really a young lawyer who wants to move forward and to move to a larger firm or a different practice or more responsibility, maybe what they need is not to meet another lawyer. Maybe what they need is people to help them get better childcare, better support for the other part of their life so that they have time to move forward in their work life. People need to know good travel agents. People need to know good insurance brokers, good bankers, people that you trust for wealth management. So lawyers don't necessarily recommend lawyers. They recommend whatever you need. And the good networkers just naturally hear you talking about you're not so happy with your child's daycare center and you have to go and pick up the child earlier than most people in your firm finish work. And so instead of talking to you about changes in the firm or going to another firm, a good connector will say, well, let me introduce you to Susan, who works with people who need to find very good ways of taking care of their children from nine till seven at night. And they do that. And they get benefits from referring. And of course, the referrer gets benefits from increased knowledge or contacts or information that that they need to move in a different direction. So why do they like to do it? Well, they like to do it, one, because as one of the networkers I I interviewed as a referrer, a connector said, he said, I do it because I never have to ask for work. People remember me because of what I do for them. So I give not to get, but in fact, I always get. And this person is a million dollar a month rainmaker for his firm. So I guess in his case, it works very well. Another reason is is that if you can get introverts as well as extroverts to understand what a referrer really does, you can get them to stop thinking about how they feel in the networking environment and about how they can share what they know in an area that most people are comfortable in with other people. And humans are hardwired to do this. We're puny little creatures, and the way in which we survived for thousands of years in the savannah was by teamwork. Collaboration is basically hardwired into the human psyche. And so when we help somebody, we feel really good. 
But the important thing about the referral relationship is it's really a three-part relationship, not two. There's the referrer. There's the person who wants to be referred. So that's called the referred with a D. And then there's the referred to, the person that they're going to be introduced to. So in the best referrals, the referrer who knows the referred to will make a personal introduction or will go along for the first meeting. In less perfect introductions, they make the introduction, but they don't go along, or they do an email introduction, or what I consider a non-referral, they say, call Charlie Brown, because you'll like him. I consider that a non-referral, but many people do that and think that they are referring. But looking at the top two, you can see that the three people are actively involved. So once a referral is made, a round-robin etiquette comes into play. The referrer talks to the referred to and the referred. The referred and the referred to meet and then get back to the referrer to let him know, him or her know, how it went, whether they're going to work together or not. And if not, that's important information too because it's very important that the referrer know if it doesn't work. And why is that? Because every time you give a referral, you're using a chit, to use a political term. You're asking somebody to do something because you, the referrer, think it's a good idea. So you're asking a favor. If the favor doesn't work out, there's kind of a smudge there. Maybe it breaks it up. Maybe it weakens the relationship. You don't want that to happen. You want to be sure enough that you know all the parties involved that the connections will take because that will build your relationship. But it's that little bit of risk there that often makes it hard. So one of the easiest ways, best ways for a referrer to work with a referred is for the referred to be specific. So many people I know when I work with them in coaching say, well, I always ask people to introduce me to heads of corporations. And I roll my eyes and I say, well, that's useless. Because when you do that, I don't know any heads of corporations right off the bat. If you want it to be effective, you have to tell them what kind of business, what kind of corporation, what level of executive at the corporation, so that then they can think precisely about who in their network would fit that. If you just ask a referrer, and most of them are very busy and often asked, if you ask them to do something that's so open-ended, you're asking them to do your work as well as an introduction. And that usually doesn't happen. So the referred has the requirement of making it specific so that the referrer can make a good referral. Lots of R's in there. (laughs) As we said before, definitely an art to the process. So I appreciate you explaining that. Carol, was there anything else you would like to discuss that we didn't get to touch on? I think one thing is, is that in the book, I talk a lot about preparing two kinds of tools. One of them is the elevator pitch, but there's also understanding your value proposition, what it is that you bring to the table that makes you interesting to other people in various networks. And then also, in addition to that, thinking ahead of time about stories, 
stories that explain what you do and why you do it. I call these communication tools. And then the most important one to prepare ahead of time is what's called a target persona. That is an abstract concept. Well, it's not abstract, actually. It's a representation of a human representation of your target, why you're networking, what it is you're looking for. So even if it's a corporate entity that you want, you want to work with energy companies, you're still going to make a target persona that's going to be in your mind, the person that you're talking to when you're forming your elevated pitch and your value proposition and your stories. And it's going to be a very precise rendition of the company or the person, what they're like, what they like to do, the kind of work they do, their buying triggers, their hobbies, their interests. You're going to make up this composite person, give them a name, and then you will do your planning for networking preparation in your mind to this person, which will make sure that it's focused. So I think that those communication tools, the persona, the value proposition, the elevator speech, and the storytelling are really important. And then secondly, practically no one remembers to talk about the intangibles. But if it's true, and it is, that 93% of an image is visual, then you need to think about that. And that has to do with your posture, your comportment, the clothes that you wear. So if you notice nowadays, everybody talks about what Nancy Pelosi wears to important meetings. Why do they do that? That's because she wears really bright colors and stylish clothes to make an impression. She wants you to have that image of her as active, engaged, relevant, and powerful. And her clothes send that message. Very important. The other day in the Wall Street Journal, there was a page article about the fact that Goldman Sachs has liberated people from having to wear coats and ties to work and made it a more casual work environment. And the article talked about the implications of that for teamwork within the organization. Very important. Body language, image, posture, clothing, touch, how far away you stand from people. Now, most of the things in my book are about America. But if you're working with people from other countries, it's very important to look up their concept of the intangibles so that you don't stand too close to people if that's not part of their culture. And finally, listening and the value of conversation, both small talk and talk about what it is that you and the other people are interested in. So I think that all of these things go to create a context for successful networking. Thank you so much for explaining a lot of those. I know um, a lot of those concepts are very important. Personally, I spent a lot of time in college on a nonverbal communication. And actually talking about intercultural communication, too, um, we have a lot of authors who are passionate about that as well, including a book called Kiss, Bow, Shake Hands, which was something I read in college also. <laughs> um, but thank you uh, so much for just talking about all these really great networking concepts and hopefully it can help people get out there and grow their business and their career. Where can our listeners reach you if they're interested in learning more about your work? They can reach me on the website that I created for the book, which is strategic networking number four, everyone.com. They can find me on LinkedIn. They can find me on my general work website, which is Carol at csgmarketingpartners.com, and they can find me 
through the ABA. Wonderful. Thank you so much for talking with us. Listeners, you can purchase Strategic Networking for introverts, extroverts, and everyone in between at the ABA web store. Go to AmericanBar.org slash products. That's AmericanBar.org slash products. If you enjoyed this episode of the Modern Law Library, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast listening service.